How can retail investors access alternative investments typically reserved for institutional investors? And where do opportunity zones fit into the universe of portfolio alternatives? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. The Institute for Portfolio Alternatives seeks to raise awareness of portfolio-diversifying investment products. And here to discuss how Opportunity Zones fits into the IPA's mission is IPA's president and CEO, Tony Ciresso. He joins us from his office in Washington, D.C. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jimmy. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So, Tony, to start us off, what do you mean by portfolio-diversifying investments? What are those exactly? Portfolio diversifying investments are, are investment strategies that are developed for the retail in, investor um, that has a lower correlation to equity investments. Traditionally, what we've seen in the past is institutions, endowments, family offices have access to not less uh, investment strategies that are less correlated to equities, but the retail investor um, traditionally hasn't had access to them. So they could be REITs, business development corporations, investments wrapped in direct participation programs. They could be debt, equity investments in real estate, investments in, in a variety of different energy type of programs, qualified opportunity zones as emerging uh, PDI investment strategy, interval funds and closed end funds. They are traditionally not uh, liquid, although they have some liquidity features in them. They're not traded. Some of them may be listed on an exchange, but they're not traded on an exchange. So there's not a secondary market. So portfolio diversified investments is really a bucket of investment strategies that professional investment advisors use to create diversification within a retail client's portfolio away from your traditional equity market. Right, so tr traditional equity markets, you know, stocks you would you would buy and sell on exchange or, or mutual funds or ETFs, uh, and and this is this is everything, or I guess most things that doesn't really fit into that category of of liquid tradable assets. Is that is that right? Correct, and then what we've seen in the past, Jimmy, and, uh, is that and, and actually increasingly so, endowments and and and, and such have increased their allocations to portfolio diversifying investment strategies, um, you know, to, to the extent of 15, 20% of the portfolio are in illiquid investments. And it, it takes out that volatility um, that you traditionally get within the equity markets. As you said, stocks, bonds, uh, mutual funds, ETFs. And so, it, you know, it creates that, that other bucket for that um, retail investors. And what makes it even more important, Jimmy, is that we've seen an increase well, with with the increase or the focus on defined contribution plans. Uh, whereas when I was younger and worked at a corporation, I had access to a defined benefit plan. My, my folks and and, 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 and and the like had defined benefit plans. As defined benefit plans are, are no longer being offered, um, the 
average uh, retail investor right now, my kids, the next generation, um, are, are having to look at and des- design um, retirement portfolios that mirror defined benefit plans. And defined benefit plans had access to the, these, these uh, divorce, diversified, uh, portfolio diversifying investments. Defined contribution plans are limited. Mutual funds, ETFs, and those volatile um, equity um, uh, type of portfolios, and that diversification is not there. Our members, uh, which are uh, institutional asset managers, structure these investments for a variety of different, um, under a variety of different type of investment strategies for the retail client. And how does the IPA fit in here? What What is the IPA basically, and when, when did it get started? So the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives has been around for 35 years, and we provide national leadership to portfolio diversifying investment in the industry. So we bring together the investment managers, a large institutional um, investment managers like a Blackstone, um, and, and to sort sort of uh, smaller institutional asset managers. We bring the intermediaries, the broker dealers, investment advisors. And, and other service professionals together, um, and so both new and established, and who are dedicated to driving transparency and innovation around this marketplace. And so for 35 years, this, this association has evolved. Um, portfolio diversifying investments have evolved over those 35 years. The IPA uh, advances best practices and guidelines. We have been uh, leading the conversation, both from a regulatory and a legislative uh, front, around how our, our industry should um, operate, uh, especially as it relates to um, sort of best practice guidance around transparency, performance metrics. We actually just issued our first, uh, in, conjunct- in partnership with uh, Robert Stanger and Associates, a REIT performance uh, report, which shows trending over the last three to five years on how our industry has performed against other real estate indexes. And the idea is to make sure that we've got the, the same level of transparency, the same level of corporate governance around our investment strategies as, as do public, our public counterparts. But through advocacy and industry-leading education, we are committed to ensuring that all investors have access to real assets. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, traditionally this sector of investments was only av- uh, available to institutional um, uh, you know, investment uh, platforms. Um, our, our, our members have now brought this down to Main Street and, and have allowed the Main Street investor to participate at the same level as Wall Street. So who are, who are IPA's members? Uh, again, we'll, you can sort of categorize them in three different areas. We have the, the institutional asset managers uh, who actually structure the, the different funds and investment strategies. Um, you have the intermediaries where uh, the professional financial advisors that work with the Main Street investor. And, and then we have all the professional services, the county firms, law firms that are around it. Um, the, the one thing I, I want to make sure we, we focus in on here and, and or sort of emphasize or stress is that all our investors' investments are, are, are um, distributed through professional financial advisors. Uh, there's a segment in the market that, that uh, structures investments and go direct. Um, there's there's the, these crowdfunding platforms. Um, the, our members choose to work through um, uh, 
you know, broker dealers, registered investment advisors, and the like, because we like the additional scrutiny, um, due diligence. And the professional advice that our the mainstream investor gets um, as it relates to constructing a diversified portfolio. Um, clearly, our investment strategies don't fit every investor. And um, what we where, where we um, value our relationships with our financial intermediaries that they are working with my parents to determine based on where they are in in their retirement sort of timeline. Um, what types of investment strategies best work for them to achieve their their long term, short term, and long term investment goals? And what also uh, is it looks at how you diversify away from sort of other types of holdings to create again a more diversified portfolio. And let's talk about opportunity zones now, since we're the uh, we're on the opportunity zones podcast. How do opportunity zones fit into the universe of PDIs, poor portfolio diversifying investments? So what, we're, what we saw is an emergence coming out of the initial um, announcement around opportunity zones going back, back when the tax reform was, was passed, was a lot of the institutional players um, and, and, and Wall Street firms jumped on um, this investment strategy in order to create uh, a, a, some tax opportunities uh, for their higher net, super high net worth family office um, clients. And what historically, uh, as part of what we do at the IPA or one of our investment strategies, um, is our, a number of tax incentive real estate investments. Uh, one particular um, structure called the Delaware Statutory Trust takes advantage of, not takes advantage of the wrong word, structures investments um, under the, the 1031 like-kind exchange code, uh, uh, internal revenue code, which allows ind- individuals to exchange out of like-kind assets into other like-kind assets and defer the tax implications until some later time. So the structure itself, as we, when we talk about portfolio diversifying investments, they're institutional investment structures that provide our members an opportunity to bring that type of structure down to the retail client. Opportunity zones, um, and when we look at sort of the motivation um, and the intent of these opportunity zones, um, they're intended to create economic stimulus in these underserved markets. But when you pull it back, there's really several things here. Number one, it's the fund structure itself, and those fund structures can be can be take on a number of different um, you know uh, looks and feels. They could be we've seen public publicly listed non traded REIT funds. We've seen large um, portfolio of private direct participation funds. We've seen uh, single asset types of fund structures. Or as you look at those fund structures, our our members are looking at an opportunity to be able to bring that type of investment strategy, whether it's a publicly listed large fund, multi-billion dollar fund, a small private fund, or single asset fund, to be able to, be able to provide that investment option and those tax benefits to the, to the retail client, who are underserved as it relates to sort of the institutional focus, Wall Street focus. 
so our involvement has really been from the standpoint of our registered investment advisors, our broker-dealer communities, are working with their clients who have, who have uh, highly appreciated assets that are looking for ways to, to diversify out of those highly appreciated assets and defer any uh, gains or reduce their, their tax liability to, at some point. Our members just see that as a great way of serving the retail client. Yeah, I think that's great, too, because it, it seems like, uh, at least just from what I've heard, that most of the early investors in Opportunity Zones tend to be corporate investors and family offices or ultra-high net worth individuals. It'd be nice if we can get some more you know, high net worth or, or even sub-high net worth retail investors uh, in, involved in this. Uh, I understand that there's some hurdles there because a lot of these funds require that investors be accredited or, or qualified investors. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it, it depends on the structure. If you have a, a, a list, a publicly listed non-traded REIT, the accreditation standards are much less. Okay, um, your income levels are much less. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, the the majority of the funds are are uh, structured where it requires an accredited investor. But uh, let's not forget that our members have been raising capital uh, through the retail marketplace uh, with you know with the Main Street investor and interesting enough uh, it's overseen uh, overlooked that although they may not have those the, the, the average Main Street investor may not have access to a Wall Street platform to access the institutional invest, investment strategies, uh, there are a significant uh, number of retail investors that are um, are accredited, and and you know, for example, as I mentioned earlier, our members uh, offer construction, Delaware Structured Trust, ten thirty one like kind exchange investments. They are wrapped in in a um, in a, a, a private placement, which requires an accreditation. Last year, uh, it, it was. $2.6 billion of equity were placed in, in these investment strategies. There is a need out there for that mainstream investor to have access to those institutional quality platforms that, it, that they can't access on their own. And our members do a very good job of identifying um, and, and having strong relationships with these, these uh, accredited uh, mainstream investors and giving them the options that they uh, like what otherwise wouldn't have. And how are the Main Street investors at the end of the day, how are they actually accessing these Opportunity Zone investment vehicles? Are, are, they, are they going through their RIAs or their, their wealth advisors? Or what, what, what's, what sorts of platforms are they, are they actually making the investments? So, it, it, and through their professional financial advisor. And and so there may be other avenues. And, and as I mentioned earlier, um, there are some uh, crowdfunding websites. There are some fund managers that will go direct um, to investors and, and, and seek investments direct. Um, our members who are um, the fund managers distribute primarily and solely through um, the, the professional financial advisor, an RIA or a broker dealer. 
Um, we believe having that uh, uh, intermediary who is advising clients about the various investment strategies, looking at their their long-term um, retirement plans and needs, looking at the sort of the, and analyzing the tax benefits of either paying taxes or deferring them through an investment strategy like a qualified opportunity zone is absolutely critical. These are, these can become complex. Um, the, the investment strategies, depending on the fund manager, um, could could be large portfolios or single assets and single markets. So they take on different risk profiles. It's absolutely critical that um, the, that the advisors or the, the investors seek the advice of a professional advisor who understands the dynamics and can advise, can advise uh, appropriately. And can act as the fiduciary for the for the investor. Correct. Uh, has there been a struggle in educating Main Street financial advisors on the topic of opportunity zones? It's a it's a complex new program and and we only recently were issued the second tranche of regulatory guidance what what's been the the challenge there in kind of trickling down the education about this program to these financial advisors such that you know main street investors can can access the program that's a great question jimmy and and you know with the advent of of this opportunity a little over uh just shy of a year and a half ago um you know i I think the, the the First concern was understanding what this really meant, um, and, and and getting that information out to the, to the broader market. Uh, as you start peeling back those layers, there are a lot of questions of, as it relates to, you know, what does this mean to uh, the, the ultimate investor based on how the funds were structured or the interpretation from Treasury on how these funds should be structured and how they would be treated from a tax perspective. Um, ultimately, we want to make sure that there's clarity so that we preserve the tax benefits that these investors are anticipating. So, you know, the, the first tranche came out. Um, it, it answered some questions. It raised some more questions and left some questions on the table. Uh, the second tranche, as, as you mentioned, were just recently uh, released. And um, we got more clarity. Um, clarity, more clarity around um, the specific market that our members focus in on, which is really, you know, commercial real estate. Secondarily, around um, investments in uh, private equity investments in in operating businesses. I think there's more clarity in the second tranche uh, than the first. And then, there, the, as we sort of work through analyzing this particular segment of uh, of, of guidance from the Treasury. Um, again, it will answer a lot of questions. It will leave some questions on the table. It will raise some more questions. And we anticipate uh, here in short order the Treasury will issue a third tranche. And they said they, they have. Um, we'll participate as an industry trade group uh, offering some um, comment letters to them seeking some additional guidance. But the challenge has been, uh, for, for the most part, is really um, articulating and communicating effectively to that professional financial advisor, um, the clarity around the regs, what what it really means, how it impacts the different investment structures, um, and different approaches that the, the fund managers are are um, approaching uh, their particular investment strategy, and then 
doing some analysis. I mean, it's you know, it's, it sounds great at, on the surface that okay, I, I get to sell, sell a highly stock, highly appreciated stock portfolio or a highly appreciated uh, real asset, and defer a particular uh, portion of, of the gain um, for you know a period of time. But doing that analysis from the standpoint of what it really means from a tax perspective, and whether it makes sense to, to to actually execute an, uh, a deferral through uh, an investment in a qualified opportunity fund or um, pay the taxes or seek a different alternative such as a 1031 exchange, um, that analysis has to be done and, very, and be very thoughtful. And that's a, um, an individual uh, facts and circumstance analysis that that professional financial advisor needs to work through with each and one of their clients. And the challenge has been bringing that, that clarity and that education down. If I can um, just just plug the IPA for one second here, one of the things that we've done, you know, it's been a focal point at our conferences. We've had a series of webinars uh, expanding this conversation out from uh, definition of the regs, practice, how do you put this into your practice? We've had a qualified opportunity zone forum here in Dallas um, uh, in February, which was um, well attended. We've got a conference coming up where we're having a half a day working group on this subject. Uh, our goal is to take these regs, take the fund structures, look at the tax analysis, and then help our financial advisors better understand how to use this appropriately and when is it suitable for a particular investor. Good. Yeah, I know at the highest levels of, of financial advising and the big four accounting firms and some of the larger law firms across the country, the OZ expertise is second to none. But, you know, having having that education trickle down to my Main Street financial advisor so that he knows about the program and not only is aware of the program, but can be able to analyze it up against a 1031 exchange or any other type of tax-advantaged investment structures that I may need as a Main Street investor, that that. That would be incredibly helpful. So I think we're starting to get there now, where where these Main Street financial advisors are are not only becoming aware of the program, but but having the capacity to to analyze them appropriately. And I, I applaud what your organization is doing in helping spread the word about about this and and doing policy advocacy. So I I want to shift gears now and ask you about some policy advocacy that that you're doing. I know you recently attended an Opportunity Zones conference at the White House. In April, it was attended by President Trump, HUD Secretary Ben Carson, and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, among others. What was your biggest takeaway from that event? Well, I, I'd start by saying it was it was a real honor uh, to be invited uh, to attend that event on behalf of the portfolio diversifying investment industry. Um, once in a lifetime, in, in many cases, to be able to uh, be. Uh, in the White House and, and hear directly from the president and his cabinet members about this very important program. Jimmy, I think um, the, the main takeaways from uh, the, the White House Opportunity Zone Conference was really their uh, interest to uh, express the importance of this program, um, the, the importance of the administration's support behind this particular program. Um, we, as you indicated, we heard from a number of cabinet members, Ben Carson specifically, who is leading that initiative for the White House. And when they talk about sort of the significance behind the Opportunity Zones 
and what this really means. You know, they, they point out a lot of very interesting statistics, like nearly 35 million Americans live in communities that are designated as qualified opportunity zones. You know, unemployment rate in these opportunity zones is 1.6 times higher, okay, than, than the average um, in a census tract. Uh, median income in the opportunity zones are 30%, 37% lower than the, the, the state and in, in, in national um, income levels. And, and there's a variety of statistics that they um, point to which demonstrate the importance of this particular tax incentive driving investments to the local communities. This event was, at, was attended by governors, uh, mayors, uh, a lot of state and local uh, economic development um, you know, representatives trying to figure out how they can capture some of these fund investments and drive capital to their individual opportunity zones within their, their, their state and local government. And the challenge uh, from an administration standpoint is trying to, number one, communicate the benefits, get clarity around these these regs, which Mugin clearly, um, you know, that, uh, articulated in his his talking points, and then uh, subsequently the release of the regs. But what they're trying to do is jumpstart this as quickly as possible. It was an interesting thing. That, uh, there was a question, and there was comment letters that were submitted, looking because of the because of the sort of the tranches of, of regulation they were trying to push out, sort of the initial time frame of twelve thirty one. Um, 2019, but the administration clearly want to say no. Let, let's let's ground this now. Let's incent people to get in early. Let's get capital flowing into these particular funds. We need to get money to work. We need to get these development projects in place. We need to get people uh, and and, and re regenerate uh, revitalize some of these areas. Um, but it was the the audience was clearly focused on. The needs of their individual communities and how do they um, reach across the table to these fund managers capital sources to drive investments into the specific project and that was really sort of what the, the main takeaway i mean there was uh you had representatives from a, a little a, a lot of the tribal lands you had uh, representative uh, leadership from the religious communities within various areas that are driving some of these types of revitalization within all their own communities. And it was really powerful to hear um, the importance uh, from each one of them of this particular initiative and how it can really change the dynamics of their local communities. So it's, you know, from, from, from my perspective in attendance, as well as where I sit in the industry, I'm really proud that our industry and our industry members are taking this seriously and looking at ways of how we can help um, drive some capital to these local markets. Good. So it sounds like a lot of community leaders were in attendance there. So that's, that's interesting to hear the types of people who were there. What types of questions were asked from the audience or what types of questions did you ask did, and to whom did you pose the questions? So, um, well, some of the questions that were asked from the audience were, were around um, you know, ways that they can work more closely with the various uh, government agencies to um, create an interest within their, their uh, local markets. And, you know, your example in regards to 
Erie, Pennsylvania, is is, is sort of a, a model uh, that many of the local communities uh, uh, might, if they haven't, they, they might look to replicate in order to be able to provide something to some of these fund managers to, to entice those investments in those local communities. So there was a lot of conversation around leveraging the various um, uh, government agencies to help either uh, communicate that message out um, and or uh, help them put together that messaging in a way that makes makes uh, you know in, you know it makes it makes sense. Um, the, I, I had an opportunity specifically to ask a question the question of Secretary Mutin, and mine was more around not necessarily around the Treasury regs because we hadn't a chance at that point in time to see them. They were just being released that day, um, and you know I, I uh, assumed that a lot of the questions that were asked in the comment letters would be addressed. So moving away from sort of the treasury discussion, um, clearly one of the things that's important to our members, uh, because my, our, our members operate in a very uh, highly regulatory environment, um, whether it be state level or federal level, FINRA, SEC, uh, state securities, um, our intermediary partners, the broker dealers and RAs, um, beyond just getting clarity around the regs, we need to get clarity around how the regulatory bodies who oversee them are, are going to um, incorporate or how are they going to uh, oversee and regulate these types of investments as it relates to the tax benefits um, and, and our, our, our members who are advising the retail client. And so we can get clarity on the treasury regs the funds can get hit the market, but if our, right, our our broker dealer and RA partners are uncertain on how they're going to be regulated um, as it relates to placing individual investors into particular funds, we shut off the flow of capital. So my question to Mr. Mutin was, you know, what what are what's the administration doing, um, the Treasury doing work to work with? the other regulatory bodies so that there's some clarity and, and transparency as it relates to how they are operating and then they're going to oversee these particular programs and 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 um, the the financial advisors. Um, I didn't get quite the answer I, I would hope for, uh, but interesting enough, I was, uh, after um, the, the formal presentation, I was approached by one of the uh, uh, White House officials and asked me to put that in, in writing because they had not contemplated reaching out to other government agencies, uh, regulatory agencies at that particular time. Um, it's a it's much different um, a regulatory environment from an institutional standpoint, family office standpoint, and dealing with the, the retail distribution side of the business. And so uh, we are in the process of summarizing that question, identifying the regulatory agencies that we would encourage them to reach out to engage in some conversation. We're hopeful we'll, they'll, they'll work hand in hand. And then um, as a result, our retail financial advisors will get the clarity they need and the comfort they need to be able to move forward recommending these investment strategies. Yeah, which, which regulatory agency specifically? Are you referring to the SEC for the most part? or uh, FINRA. FINRA, okay. Um, uh, SEC. And this, the states, um, each state has its own uh, regulatory body that 
that's um, you know uh, governed by NASA, uh, not the space agency, um, and um, each state operates slightly on, on, at you know with slight, slightly different types of uh, interpretations of securities laws. A good example of, of this is that there is several states. If you're a registered investment advisor um, that uh, operates on a, a fee platform, if you're putting a client into an illiquid investment like an opportunity zone fund, um, you can't charge a fee for managing that investment. Um, that's problematic. Um, it will um, prohibit a, a financial advisor or a registered a professional registered investment advisor from earning a fee uh, for advising a client to go into an opportunity zone fund. And um, as a professional financial advisor, um, if I, I, I'm not going to take on that risk of re- making a recommendation to a client where I have a fiduciary responsibility uh, with no form of being compensated. And so what we want to do is make sure we work with the state and federal regulatory agencies to provide guidance to our members so they are clear as to what the you know, guidelines are, how they're going to be interpreted, and um, what type of oversight um, the regulatory agencies are going to be conducting as it relates to this particular investment strategy. Gotcha. Rewinding now back to the Treasury discussion, uh, namely the IRS hearing that took place back in February one of your board directors testified at that hearing, Dan Cullen, a partner at Baker McKenzie. Can, can you summarize the remarks that he made during that IRS hearing on qualified opportunity funds and, and some of the issues that the IPA is focused on? Yeah, so uh, we were real proud of uh, one of 15 firms that, that or 15 organizations that had a chance to testify. And uh, we focused our comments, although it could have been much more broad, on four particular topics. And... Uh, you know, the, one of them was on the form of disposition to provide clarification that investors in a qualified opportunity fund making a, a basis step up election in, in their qualified opportunity interest after 10 years may receive the same benefits of such basis increase when a qualified opportunity fund asset sells. Um, the permitted use of debt financing. So clarifying um, that normal partnership tax rules apply with respect to use of debt financing um, related to these uh, qualified opportunity zone funds. The impact of tax deferred transactions on uh, on step-up basis. So provide clarification related to the impact, if any, of certain tax deferred transactions on the fair market value basis step-up election available under Section um, of 1400Z2C, and again, uh, that's why we have Dan Cohen, who's our ultimate tax expert, helping us, uh, advising he's a board member of IPA and tax partner. And then the last thing is the flexible gain reinvestment of rollovers and uh, and holding period rules. And so uh, we focused on those four areas because these were um, the, the primary areas that uh, as we are looking at the original structuring of funds and, and, and working through um, our um, intermediary partners, were questions that were coming up. 
uh, on a regular basis. How do you address these things? What does it really mean, both short-term and long-term, to, to the ultimate investor? And so um, it was, uh, you know, with, with uh, a lot of work and some guidance uh, from our board, our, our policy and government affairs committee, and then uh, uh, thanks to Dan's testimony, we were able to, to bring these particular issues to the forefront when the Treasury was working through um, some, some of the uh, second tranche of, of rules and regs. And this, that second tranche was released by the IRS recently. What, what, what's your initial reaction to that second tranche? Did, did the IRS get it right, or did they get anything wrong? And did they address those those four points that Dan discussed during the hearing? So uh, I, I would say that um, the answer to your question, I think they got a lot right. Um, and and uh, generally speaking, uh, you know, that if I had to summarize it. Um, the, the, the questions and, and guidance that we were seeking as an industry uh, generally was addressed, um, maybe not as clear in some areas as we probably would have liked them, but in enough clarity that uh, we feel that we've got some, guide, some, some clearer guidance to be able to uh, move forward and, um, and, and feel comfortable as it relates to the structure of the deals uh, so that we don't impact any tax benefits associated with our investors. Um, if you look at the, the second guidance as a whole, um, they, they spent a lot of time working on um, or providing some guidance around operating companies, uh, which wasn't clearly addressed in the, second tra- uh, the first tranche. And uh, there were a lot of lingering issues out there as to um, a variety of different issues related to operating companies. I think they've done a very good job um, uh, addressing them. But with any complex regs like this, you're going to address some questions and you're going to address them clearly. You'll address some questions and there'll be some lingering clarity that you're going to be, would like to have or, or, or uh, will we'll seek. Um, it may open up some new questions based on uh, some of the guidance. And clearly, the IRS, um, as they brought out this this next tranche, uh, knew that there were some other guidance that they weren't prepared to be able to roll out. Uh, they needed some more time, but they didn't want to hold up the second tranche in order to be able to, um, you know, to answer all the questions. So there's some additional questions out there. Most of those additional questions um, don't necessarily impact our our membership, um, but you know, we we clearly would like to. Make sure that we're get we're, we get that guidance to make sure that there isn't any conflicts. But right now, we feel really good based on the guidance we were seeking um, in in our comment letters and our testimony to what came out in the second trial. Good. Well, more more clarity is coming. Uh... All the time, it seems. We, I'm, I'm glad we got this second tranche finally. That's cleared up a lot of things, and we'll get uh, some more guidance before the end of the year. But at this point, I think investors, most investors, have what they need to move forward. Uh, well, Tony, we're getting to the end of our our conversation here, but I I want to ask you a retrospective question I posed to most of my guests. What's been your most memorable investment that you've ever made? Anything in particular that stands out? You know, I, I was I was involved in um, uh, personally in a, involved in an investment in um, and, and had the opportunity to invest in a, 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 a home builder, and in Austin, Texas, and uh, it's it's a Texas has been 
leading the country in um, corporate relocations, employment growth, um, population growth. Austin is a hotbed uh, of that. And um, as an individual investor investing in a, a non-public company, um, it can be uh, challenging. But through a, a private fund that I had, uh, I had an opportunity to make a nominal investment in, and uh, that home builder has exceeded um, their numbers for the last three years. And it's, it's actually, it, it hasn't gone full cycle. So, you know, the, lot to be, there's, the story is yet to be told. But the, the, the trajectory it's going um, on right now is incredibly positive. We see an, an incredible growth in, in the city of Austin. Home, home building, home ownership is, continues to increase. And so that, to me, was one of the um, more uh, memorable uh, investments that uh, I say I've been part of. Yeah, Austin has undergone an incredible transformation over the last couple of decades here. Uh, it seems to be growing by leaps and bounds. Well, Tony, thanks for joining me today. Can you... Um, you tell my listeners now where they can go to learn more about you and the IPA? And I, I believe you have an event coming up pretty soon. So, so tell us a little bit about that and, uh, and how you may be discussing the emergence of technology in, in your sector. What do you got going on over there at the IPA? Yeah, so um, IPA.com um, is, is our website. Uh, you can link to our and, and get connected to, through social media, LinkedIn and Twitter through, through that website. Um, we have regular conferences. We've got uh, our advocacy and, and due diligence forum that's coming up in D.C. the, uh, the 6th, 7th, and 8th. Um, we, we do our Hill Day visits. Uh, we'll be um, talking about all the advocacy issues beyond qualified opportunity zones that uh, both on a regulatory and legislative front that are impacting our, our industry and our members. Um, in January, June, we have our, uh, our IA practice management Forum. It's in Chicago, um, geared towards registered investment advisors. Um, talk, going back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, this, how do we educate? How do we provide information? What's the conduit of making sure that there's clarity around these emerging investment opportunities? Um, that that conference is focused on on that. Uh, we have our women's initiative in June in Chicago as well. It's actually uh, in conjunction with our RA practice, and it's focused on. Women, uh, our, our emerging women leadership within our industry. Matter of fact, our board, our chair and, and chair elect are both um, senior uh, 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 female leadership within our industry. And on our, our annual conference will be in Toronto, Canada in September. Uh, all that information in regards to our events, webinars, we do five, uh, two webinars a month. Uh, delivering information out to our members and, and our, our audience about these various topics. They're all available. Matter of fact, this Thursday, I'm hosting a webinar with Dan Cullen and other um, tax practitioners going through the regs in detail. Um, you'll find all that information at the IPA website, and it's open to uh, all industry participants. IPA.com. That's the spot to go. And, uh, for my listeners, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website, show notes for this particular podcast episode. You can find those at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. You'll find links to all of the resources that Tony and I discussed on today's show. I'll have a link to IPA.com, of course, and, and also their upcoming events calendar. 
Tony, I think we I think we covered it all. Thanks for joining me on the show today. I think this has been a great episode, and uh, I look forward to hearing from you again soon. Jimmy, thank you very much for inviting me, and uh, have a great day. Absolutely. You too. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.